Hello, CAA, and welcome to the CAA Conversations podcast series. My name is Sunny Spillane. I'm an associate professor of art education at the University of North Carolina at Greensboro. And today I am hosting a conversation between Carmen Neely and Giovanna Jones. Carmen Neely is currently a visiting assistant professor of drawing and painting at Oklahoma State University. She maintains an ongoing practice of exploring identity and memory through abstraction. Her work is currently represented by Jane Lombard Gallery in New York. Giovanna Jones is a writer and teacher of race, gender, and cultural production. She is currently working on her PhD in African and African American Studies at Harvard University. She's the founder and facilitator of the Black Studies Reading Room, a monthly conversation on Black literature, art, and ideas hosted in collaboration with Boston-area bookstores and cultural institutions. Their conversation topic today is trusting the validity of diverse narratives, diversity as foundational. So welcome, Giovanna and Carmen. Thank, Thank you. you. <laughs> so exciting and different. <laughs> right? <laughs> uh, well, where should we start? I mean, Giovanna and I have talked a few times um, previously in preparation for the recorded conversation. Um, and so many different aspects of this idea kept coming up repeatedly, which is how we came to the title for the podcast, this idea of trusting and thinking about uh, trusting ourselves as educators, trusting our perspective, trusting diverse perspectives in the classroom from our students, peers, colleagues, just was a reoccurring theme and felt like it connects to so many aspects of um, working as an educator, uh, operating as a professional artist, writer in our field, and um, thinking about pedagogy. Absolutely. Um, so I think one of the things that came up a lot, um, Carmen, I think, was surprised to learn that I am not actually in an art history program. <laughs> and so <laughs> that kind of sparked um, a big conversation about what does it even mean to study art and aesthetics to be able to have a stake in a conversation about art and aesthetics, um, mm -hmm. to teach it, to talk about it, to do it. So what is this question of training and like who has the proper authority to be able to speak on art of any kind? Um, so yeah, where should we pick back up on the conversation? We've talked about so much. I'm, I'm mad we've been recording this whole time. Like, we I know. <laughs> well, I think I remember us beginning thinking about our own personal experience with pedagogy yeah. before becoming, you know, being placed in the role of actually being the educator. And for me, and for many other people that I've talked to in MFA programs, that's not always a part of your curriculum. You actually just truly learn through experience um, as a graduate student and then through teaching part-time immediately, you know, at five different universities at a time right after you graduate. Um, so it's not only learning through experience, but it's learning that process of developing your own pedagogy while being really overwhelmed and sort of flooded by the responsibility of, of being stretched so thin. And I think that thinking about ways to sort of decolonize, you know, your um, approach to art historical perspective or presentations of, of art making in the classroom 
I think is overwhelming for a lot of people initially in that in that situation because they're already so overwhelmed just by sort of the workload, developing a curriculum from nothing in the beginning and feeling like adding all of those things on top of each other is just too much to sort of deal with at once. Right. And I think that's how a lot of people, I mean, honestly, myself included, initially recognizing even in the moment that I know that there's other ways I can present this perspective or this history, but not feeling like I have the bandwidth, right? Yeah. And then, <laughs> yeah. and then feeling like it's too massive of an, of an undertaking. Right. Um, and, you know, also, Sunny, you're explaining to us that we're sort of, our podcast theme is placed in this, uh, like, radical category. Something <laughs> Javada and I talked about before, too, is this idea of, like, of challenging that sort of traditional narrative that we're all familiar with, that it's easy to regurgitate for some people. Like, the idea of that being radical just by subtly shifting one conversation in your classroom or throwing in one additional name that mm -hmm. doesn't fit the standard is actually a radical act. Um, but this like pressure, this idea of not uh, feeling like you don't have the time to, to prepare enough or feeling like you're not the authority because your previous experience has, been, has dealt with all of the, the sort of traditional names and perspective, I think prevents people a lot from just taking a small step. And all it is, right, to think be radical in the classroom is a series of small steps that you can handle, right, at one time. Yeah, 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 yeah. And so I'm holding on to this idea of like, you know, things being overwhelming. And part of what's overwhelming, and sometimes even we're slipping into conversations about what it felt like to be a student in these spaces, mm -hmm. and then how that's informing what it feels like to be like teachers in these spaces. And so right now I'm thinking of two of my own experiences. One is a, one is a teacher most recently and then one is a student. So part of what's cool about, you know, being the person who does cultural production interpretation of some kind in my department is that there are certain professors like say of like history, for instance, that really love to be able to think through um, images in a really integral way, um, visual logics in a really integral way and in how we think about the production of history. And so I got to be a teaching fellow for one of those professors and he would mostly do the lectures. And then he would say for my, um, for my uh, tutorials almost for the students before they would do a, an assignment, he would have me kind of break down what are some different modes of interpreting this material? Like how can we think about form when we think of um, quantitative data about a transatlantic slave trade versus the images that we see cycling in these documentaries about slavery? Or why is it that we had this, like so many movies about slavery, like after Toni Morrison wrote Beloved? <laughs> like, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So these are the kinds of things that he wanted me to start thinking through and how to um, teach students that there are different ways of processing and producing information. And so one thing that occurred to me when we were gonna do our final assignment, it was gonna be on, um, it was like a film analysis, I think. And there were three different, a couple of different films they could choose from all about slavery in some capacity or um, a history of enslavement. And for me, I've done film analyses. Like I'm used to working with objects of some kind and thinking of like the aesthetic register of things. I've done it. But I felt this like pause in the room and we had students ranging from freshmen to graduate students. And I suddenly asked, I was like, okay, raise your hand if you want me to send you an instructions on like how to do a film analysis. And every, everyone raised their hand. At first I was doing it because I don't know, I just didn't, 
I didn't want to assume that say it would be the freshmen that needed the help. But to see even graduate students saying like this whole idea of thinking about cultural material and aesthetics and even how to do that work of analysis yeah. is something that I just don't know how to do. <laughs> like this is just not something I do. And so in that process, I had to go back and look into like, okay, yeah, how does one do a film analysis? Like what are what are the pieces of um like watching film, viewing films that he can kind of like untie and notice like, oh, there are deliberate choices that are being made when you hear this score during this scene. Like we can pay attention to, um, you know, not just the dialogue, but also uh, the staging of certain people and objects in space, like in a particular kind of scene. And mm -hmm. so it forced me to really break down how does something like, visual and sonic happen <laughs> how do we analyze it from scene to scene what does that look like and so that became really exciting to me because it reminded me that like so much so much um training is really about this assumption that students are kind of like already know <laughs> that these things are important mm -hmm. and so like we're expecting them to have a trust in that kind of process like a trust that okay we know painting's a thing, we know film is a thing, and it has a whole history behind it. And once you learn that history and the, and I tell you what you need to know to do this, that's it. And there's kind of already the shame because you should already feel like you know how to do it, <laughs> but you shouldn't. Like, right. you should already know how to do these things. Um, so that process of defamiliarizing art and culture and how it happens, like as a practitioner and as um, a viewer is just important. I had another thing, but that story went longer than I expected. Well, if you don't mind, if I jump in here for a quick second, Carmen, I'd like to affirm something that you said about learning to become a teacher as an MFA student and an emerging professional, where your training as a graduate student does and some MFA programs have some modest amount of, or maybe differing amounts of pedagogical training for grad students at UNCG. I don't think there's anything formal, uh, but that in my morning conversation today with my colleagues from MassArt, they were having a lot of success in recruiting students of color to mass art and to diversifying their student body, but their biggest roadblock that they identified was pedagogy, was the curriculum. And they identified the issues that you discussed, Carmen, as part of that problem where we have this inherited history and these inherited ways of doing business that none of us have the institutional support or mm -hmm. the targeted professional development to actually make change even when we really, really want to and it's really important to us that that actually is a learning curve that requires support. Um, I think that, you know, I have tried to, I've benefited strongly from seeking out other peers, colleagues who are like Giovanna in a similar position, sort of emerging in uh, as practitioners and becoming educators or gaining experience through that way and learning from them and also sort of forming my own <laughs> pedagogical, you know, education through uh, reading. And Bell Hooks has been really influential to me. And I speak about her a lot in this context, largely because um, reading 
from her series gave me confidence and some sort of sense of uh, acceptance of the fact that I'm going to be imperfect, right? And that the failures that exist in a classroom are also um, building blocks, right? To sort of creating a stronger sense of safety in that space and uh, accepting that and embracing those moments um, strengthens your relationship with your students and their ability to be open in a space too where you can can fail in presentation or maybe something may go as uh, not exactly as planned, but that you're flexible enough to like shift in the space and and uh, bounce off of whatever, however your students engage or react. It's really powerful and I think initially, especially for those of us who are totally learning through experience, it seems like a really intimidating idea, just the thought of it. Um, and so having feeling like it was also part of my responsibility if I was knowing if I'm going to become a better educator that I have to be uh, strong and see those those moments as opportunities. It was really impactful for me. Mm -hmm. You're talking about teaching to transgress. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Mm -hmm. I mean, for me, when I'm teaching, like the point is to be teaching race, gender, culture <laughs> in some kind of right, way. Right. Right. Mm -hmm. Like that's the point. And so what? It was when I was in an MFA program for a semester when I realized like, oh yeah, like that's actually what I'm interested in. Um, these other conversations more like foregrounded. So I'd love to hear more about like just your ideas on how to, how to build that into the practice of teaching painting as a practice. And I, and I asked that because I think I shared this in a, a previous conversation, but when I was in my MFA in photography, I remember like I hadn't done the BFA or anything. I only had kind of technical training, um, mostly in digital. I was very much like concept led, I'm led by the spirit. And so typically <laughs> that should have like my, but my, my interest in a certain kind of vision of what I wanted to do would power how I wanted to use the tools. And that's where I wanted the training. Like, let me figure out how to do these tools to, mm -hmm. to kind of better attend to these like conceptual things I'm interested in. One thing that really got me and still not so much haunts me, but really charges how I think about, um, I guess, artistic practice and learning it and building analyses of race and gender into that is that I, for one crit, like I had done some photographs of like my body and I remember some of the feedback was about, um, I think they said there are qualities of it that seemed like almost too, uh, they didn't say sexual, that wasn't the word, but it ranged from like kind of too explicit to the kind of like a medical feel, um, like medical observation, like all these different kinds of things that were very interesting to me conceptually because I was like, that's real. I'm thinking of the black female body in like the American imagination. Mm -hmm. And there's a deep history of like medical exploitation. There's a deep history of explicitness and sexualization, all of that's there. And so on one end conceptually, I was like, okay, I see how you could see that. But then on the other end, I got, I felt very vulnerable and very, in a way that that felt icky because I wondered, I'm like, I actually don't know if we're talking about the same thing. <laughs> like, mm. Because are you seeing my body in these images as that? Because we, you are conditioned to see it as that. It's, I was right. Really, by the way, these are all white folks. So I'm like, because you're conditioned to see my body in the visual field as that, or are we on the same page about the Black female body and these kind of histories? And I knew we weren't. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah. We weren't. And so that's what really did me in. 
that was like a like a breaking moment personally because I was just like I don't I don't know how to do a visual practice through photography as a black woman in the way that I'm interested in and get the training when I feel like the training is haunted by like the very things I'm trying to to work against and I don't yeah. know who can help me do that and figure that out. I mean, I think so. Yeah, in the way that, um, you know, like I said, I, I, I know that immediately after graduating, I carried those same, you know, I inherited that same perspective, although obviously I am a black woman making from a totally different lived experience and have references also outside of that larger narrative that was taught to me. That w was the larger perspective that I could right, recall easily, perform easily in the classroom, but it's, it's every one of our responsibility in that position with a, with a group of individuals coming with their own unique histories, uh, cultures, and their own perspectives to be aware and embrace when that shifts, recognize that that's, that's a shift, and to open up a space for it, right, yeah. to be embraced by other people in the classroom as well. And even if it puts you outside of your own frame of reference, yeah. you still have to embrace it. And that's how, again, doing that is still in this moment, I think, a radical act. Because like you said, you didn't feel that space in your position. And that's like, that's a really sad um, occurrence because you felt discouraged to even engage in this craft because you didn't feel that space. So, Yeah, no, no. Thank you for saying that. And it, it's... It's so, um, it makes me think so much about forms of teaching where, again, there's this question of like canon or what, what do you have to know to be able to do this thing? Mm -hmm. And then there's a question of what are you trying to do this thing with this mm -hmm. thing and how can I best help you get there? And right. so I know that, for instance, if I, if I had kept on going with the MFA pursuit, I didn't want my bread and butter to be art. Like, that was the real thing that I stopped. I was like, oh, I don't know if, like, that's my ministry. <laughs> I can come at this in a different way, which is why this conversation feels so like, yes, I figured out I entered in this way. But, um, but when I do think about the practice of, like, teaching students art in some capacity, it, I mean, there are just tons of students of color who have a really, specifically Black, brown students who have a really rigorous, like critical race lens in their practice, <laughs> like in their practice. And so when they go into MFA programs, I have a friend, I have friends who are in MFAs now who are in MFAs and also doing PhDs at the same time. And all of them are saying the same thing that like, I am well aware of the history of the kind of work that I'm trying to do, the artists that I'm working out of. Mm -hmm. I was trying to do my work because Carrie Mae Weems did her work in a way where I was like, I'm trying to do that. <laughs> like, I'm trying to do that, but in yeah. my own way. And so what does it mean then when we have students that come into these programs who do have a vision for the kind of work that they want to do and they want the tools to be able to do it to the best of their ability, but the critique that they're getting is about their vision. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it's like they're not even getting help with the tools because everyone's coming for their idea of the kind of art practice that they want to do and the, the conversations they're engaged in. Right. What do people do about that? <laughs> you know, you telling that story makes me think of uh, a really frustrating instance a friend of mine told me about where she went into a space as a uh, visiting artist and had critiques with students. And that essentially um, they sort of, it seemed that the class had sort of saved the Black students' work 
for her to come, <laughs> for them to like formally engage with because she is a visiting artist as a black woman. So this idea that like um, those, I, those ideas, those intentions, that perspective can, can only be engaged with in a certain way too and by certain people is, is really problematic. And I think that they probably saw what they were doing as something that you know was aimed at being supportive, mm -hmm. but it also was kind of like um, putting off any responsibility <laughs> that you should have, you know, independently yeah. to to again create that space in your classroom. Um, so and, and you know I see I wonder about that too, and I see it happen to people who come into programs that are trying to become more diverse. Yeah. And they are hiring people to, because they recognize this need and this lack. Um, but hiring one or two, you know, people of color on your faculty to just completely deal with, you know, the students who are not feeling space in every other, in every other classroom is not the only solution. Right. Like those people need to be present, but we all collectively need to be thinking about making these shifts. Yeah. And about a sense of trust, like, I think, because, I mean, I also, as a student, I wasn't that good. <laughs> like, there was mad stuff I had to learn, <laughs> technically. <laughs> I wanted to learn, right? And so there becomes this difficulty, and this happens, you know, in art classrooms and also um, in the classrooms that I'm usually teaching in or present in, that because students know to a certain extent to maybe not trust the people that are in charge of their education, because they know that a lot of times the, the students critique of the teaching of the curriculum is valid. And then I, I think for, I'll speak from my own point of view, that's the, also the moment where it becomes difficult for me to then receive the critique that I actually need. So, right. so how do you yeah. the difference between a critique that's steeped in like a misunderstanding of me and my project and what I'm doing and what I'm about what my people are about, how, how, so how do I hold that? And then separate that from the critique that's really about like, hey, here's what you're trying to do. In order to do it, you gotta be able to do X. Like, mm -hmm. and when to tell the difference between those two kinds of critique. Um, I wish you could see my hands on the podcast. I'm so <laughs> just- <laughs> I know. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> right. I think I did, I had that experience of a, a black woman who was a visiting artist. The, that semester I was in the program and her studio visit with me was fantastic. <laughs> but I was really just like, wow, like had she come like two weeks earlier, would I be on a whole different path right now? Yeah. Yeah. And I, I definitely have seen that too. People not getting the, the support that they need or people not being open to engage in other ways and that their work suffered. Yes. For sure. Yes. But that idea of trust, you know, trust between the students and um, faculty, it sort of mirrored in conversations we've had previously, the trust that we need to learn to have in ourselves as yeah. well. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, because, you know, I, I've, I've been in a few institutions where I think most institutions, we're operating there as a minority in the faculty. And you are in a context where 
you want to be, um, you want to engage with these ideas. You want to present these new perspectives and push that critical engagement. But also, I've been learning too that <laughs> the sad truth is that um, black women are judged really harshly on uh, student evaluations, yeah. Um, yeah. really negatively. And a, and a lot of times it ca can come down to the information that you choose to present and students not even perceiving that, right? Because comparatively to maybe what others are presenting in a historical perspective, it mm -hmm. might be different or it might be not be these sort of, you know, traditionally iconic like white male yeah. names and that that's seen as a, as a downfall. Mm -hmm. And that kind of pressure, like knowing that that exists, obviously shouldn't stop us right <laughs> from like pushing through and pushing forward but we we also I mean peer student evaluation at some point they do matter for job retention at the same time yeah 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 that's so sad I mean and the research is pretty clear that student evaluations are biased against women and people of color and particularly women of color, that that's just what it is. Mm -hmm. And that they are not always a valid measure of uh, faculty performance. And then that's interesting to consider in relation to the dialogue that you were just having about, well, because on the one hand, as a faculty member myself, I think that students' critiques of the curriculum are really valid in most cases. I mean, I think that students' critical race critiques of, this, of the curriculum are really valid. Mm -hmm. And so I think that the anonymous teacher evaluations, that there's something else at play there, perhaps, I don't know, white supremacy. <laughs> So, and you know, a white vantage point. <laughs> so, well, and also that kind of uh, anonymity, it well, it promotes trolling and, and that, that it's not about, it's not about building a relationship and it's not about building trust. You know, it's not about a project that we're involved in together and a relationship that we're building together. And uh, anyway, and I think going back to this question about evaluations and evaluations often being a make or break for black women, for women of color broadly, what's wild is that it's not even just that like students are far more critical in like trolling these women because people troll these like old white professors that have been there for decades all the time that never change the way they teach that <laughs> the every single time. Those professors just become notorious. And sometimes they become a measure of real rigor. Like, oh, you, right. didn't, you didn't really get uh, this major or this um, this concentration, this practice until you took this class with so-and-so. It's terrible, right? Now we're all going to validate each other for having experienced the same terrible professor. Like, and so it's this moving target of um, authority. And, and what's the word I'm looking for? Not authority. Of, I guess, evaluation of who gets right. to do what you do. Because in that way, evaluations never matter, rarely matter for white men. So they can be as bad or as good, but they don't actually matter. They're not a make or break for these professors. It's just another thing to add to the pot of how to evaluate like black women 
when you actually don't really want them to succeed there at all. <laughs> and you know what you saying that reminds me of this really important thing that you said in a previous conversation about, you know, thinking about who gets to be the innovators and who then yeah. can, can operate only in reference to their work and their innovations, right? And we, we were talking about that in the sense of looking at artists and how Black artists, you know, we love to praise them for how referential their work can be to these other, you know, old masters who were the innovators that like created the new approach. And the more layers of sort of reference, you know, a person has, the more the like better. rich. Yes. <laughs> the more impressive it is. Well, look, they are good and smart. <laughs> <laughs> but, and then, you know, it made me think so much. I was like, oh my God, it's like exactly the same thing in academia too. Or it's just yeah. like in another facet, the same, you know, sense of feeling like you, you need to, for validity, yeah. be in sort of like proximity to this other thing or idea because right. that has acceptance. Right. Right. But then that sense of that, that sense of mastery of the history becomes the very thing that people used to say that you're not innovative. You're not <laughs> and so that's what's so difficult. And that that's what in looking at the history of African-American art and the conversations that are happening all the time among artists about, especially between like, like the thirties and the sixties into the sixties, like, Basically, that black artists are never seen as modern <laughs> or as being on any, any conversation about modernism and being at the forefront of that, that they're only ever following suit. And so then it's it's just this tension of you can be the best master of this craft and it's going to be that mastery that people used to judge you and to this, then discredit, uh, discount your quote unquote originality, like your freshness. And so you could, as a black artist, you can actually never be the innovator. You can always be the inspiration. For someone else's innovation. Right. Will never be the innovator. And I don't know, is that is that changing now? Is that changing because now you can go to at least some universities and take an African American art class? Like you can take classes that are engaging black aesthetics in a really formative, um, historical and interpretive way. Like you can we see even references on TV, um, like in Queen Sugar, for instance. Like I think they are driving home for them them the importance of pushing forward like a um a black art discourse one of the characters on the show she's like an, a, an artist and she's in high school and she lists her favorite artists and she lists like um oh my gosh who i'm forgetting people's names right now but basically she lists some names of these contemporary artists and some folks from like the, the 60s 70s old contemporary and it became this thing where i was like wow i've never seen this moment on TV before where this like young black girl is wanting to be an artist and her references are all these other black artists that we all know right now. And yeah. Arvidu Renee and all the people behind Queen Sugar are doing this active form of like relevance and like canonizing black artists today so that they can be the reference points. They can be seen as the innovators and in driving a conversation. That practice of literally shifting the history and like knowledge of art. And that's happening now. Yeah. Maybe, like, maybe it happened before. So what do you think about that? <laughs> oh, man. <laughs> maybe it didn't stick. I mean, I think that possibly uh, visual art, contemporary art becoming more or like there's a sort of resurgence of it being a part of popular culture in like television, music, 
um, that ge that that generally is helping to bring this back to the forefront as well. I don't I don't I think there have always been people who are trying to bridge those gaps, but the platform is different now. So I think that's a, a benefit to visibility of more diversity. Yeah. Um, but it's interesting because, you know, as a black woman who's working with gestural abstraction, it's like something also that I just personally am wrestling with in terms of, you know, this identity that where in this lineage that I sort of fit Oh, and I'm engaging with people from all different parts of that history. Um, but it's today, like how thinking about how my work's going to be evaluated in a certain context or by a certain person um, in a certain space, those kind of things, those perspectives are constantly sort of shifting in ways that I don't fully have control over. Yeah. And it, it's something that I also, you know, just carry with me a lot too, like the, the weight of thinking about how can I potentially, possibly, if it is possible, control those narratives more, what parts of it do I embrace or sort of like release? So I don't know. I mean, I think that there are a lot of us still operating in contemporary contexts that are maybe trying to work freely more freely from mm -hmm. this like burden of that history, but that there's still so many people <laughs> sort of in play who are going to project it. Yeah, and I mean, that's so hard. I think about this with black abstraction all the time. Like um, I got to do just like a bibliography, working on a bibliography for, for a professor I was working with here or at Harvard. And it was really enlightening to just think through like, what are these conversations about like black artists and aesthetics? <laughs> Sorry, not aesthetics, black artists and abstraction that have been happening. Um, what does that mean? Like, how, how do we think about that? What does it mean to have a conversation about abstract expressionism? But then also about like Adrian Piper, who is very much thinking through abstraction. Um, and should we be thinking these two things together? And so, I don't know, I wonder, I feel like, for instance, someone who's looking at like, um, Norman Lewis's work or Alma Thomas Thomas's work for the first time. Is it important that we know they're black? Like, and there's a part of me that feels like we're in context. <laughs> like we are not out of time. We are not out of like we're in context. Right. In some ways, it's actually important for people to know that like there are black folks invested in a certain kind of abstract work. Yes. And it who they are matters to that, yet also can't be reduced. <laughs> to the fact yes. that they're black and they are making this art. And so how do we treat that, for instance, in a class, either when I'm teaching a class on black aesthetics or when you're teaching painting? I think a lot of it is uh, how much diversity in aesthetics do people see in relation to identity and race? Mm. Because when you're not seeing, when you don't see any person that looks like Alma Thomas making geometric abstraction until, you know, you're 30, <laughs> then it, it means a different thing versus yeah. if you had been exposed to more representation before that, you, you have an understanding that maybe like it's not an anomaly. It's not, it's not so difficult to grasp its right. existence. Right, 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 right. And then, you know, I think a lot about, like it's important we know that. And then what are the terms that we can then use to then interpret this artist's work? Like, I think the one gesture that people make, even the most, like, the dopest, like, 
critics that I read sometimes. The one gesture people tend to make when it comes to um, abstract works by Black artists, it's like sound, jazz, music. Look, yes. <laughs> oh you don't know how many times I've been told that. <laughs> Abstraction is actually jazz. <laughs> and there's a place for that. Like there's a, I, I know there's a history to why we kind of connect and wed these things. And that's important right. analytic to understand. And especially when I think of the kind of stuff that I teach. And at the same time, I'm like, yo, everything's not jazz. <laughs> like when all the this looks out and is looking at flowers and is looking at nature and trying to then think through these geometric approaches to these colors and whatever right. else. We can talk about that like intricately and come to other kinds of conclusions about what that's doing for us, what that's doing about how we think through painting. Like, oh, there are so many other access points and yet it's already a part of like the tool, the toolkit, <laughs> like to just say mm -hmm. black jazz, like we can. Yeah. <laughs> and so we're also working against that. We're trying to think through new stuff while also really contesting with the limitations and not trying to throw the limitations out. But just how do we, and Toni Morrison and Jane are all about this, like vocabularies and grammars of like blackness and black life. But again, that's not just about like conclusion is black, but is about there's a way that, 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 that black folks have been foreclosed to being able to um, uh, hold the authority, not foreclosed, because we've been doing it, but like to be able to hold the authority and have an influence of authority when it comes to how we interpret and think through the world. And that it's been white people that have been at the forefront, the forefront, keeping themselves at the forefront of doing that and saying, this is knowledge, this is how you do it. And what I'm saying, what you're saying, what uh, those of us invest in like, a critical race, art historical art practice, we're saying like, nah, <laughs> there's other things that are possible. <laughs> Defamiliarize, de decenter yes. white at the forefront of that production of, of interpretation and knowledge. Absolutely. It's more than jazz. <laughs> I think that's going to be the title of your of this conversation. It's more than jazz. <laughs> I feel like that's a perfect note to end on. <laughs> like, that's supposed to get me roasted. My career is now ending. <laughs> that's the title of your blog now, Giovanna. Hashtag it's more than jazz. <laughs> Well, just remember, <laughs> remember when I had a career. <laughs> no, it's just funny. It's funny, too, because, like, my dad wrote a book called The Jazz of Preaching. Like, I come from a jazz head. And so, <laughs> like, the jazz in art. This is fun, though. Well, yes. this is amazing. And I would love to keep talking with you both on into the evening, <laughs> karaoke all night long. <laughs> and maybe cocktails too and um anyway it was a real pleasure to host this conversation between the two of you thank you so Do much for asking I, I'm like this is great and thank you for asking me Carmen because you yeah. did not have to but <laughs> I haven't kicked it in years so <laughs> I know but I was excited to connect with you again it was like big you know <laughs> Thank you so much for your participation in this CAA conversation. Thank you. Bye.